I just went through the e-gates. I didn't interact with anyone who asked me where I had been. I didn't get my temperature taken, didn't have to prove I uh, had a test, negative test result. They had you fill out a self-declaration form. And when we asked the border control people, well, what about the people that don't have a form or they go through the e-gates and you don't look at that, their form? What's the process there? And I kid you not, the response was, well, we just have to trust them. Welcome to the Pim Factory, the Addis with Issues podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'll be joined by my co-host and our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and the ASI's head of external affairs, Morgan Schonemeyer, our resident American. Now, Morgan, how are things going over there? Things are all right in London. We're stuck in lockdown, um, unlike you, our little Australian who managed to escape. I managed to escape. I was very, I was very lucky, as I, as I think I said at the, the start of the last podcast. Yeah, it was it was Australia Day, so I wonder if you uh, got to celebrate Australia Day, go out to the beach, rub it in our faces. Well, I may have posted a photo in the group chat of me at the beach on Australia Day, and look that that may. That may indeed have happened, and I may have rubbed it in your face a little bit too much, and I will—I do apologize for that. Do you feel even a little bit guilty? I feel—I do feel a little bit guilty. I do feel actually genuinely quite awful that um, I was lucky enough to get out just in time before the world. The sincerity is so clear in your voice to hear my, uh, my, my wonderful co-host. You're—you you have missed out on the snow here in London, though. It did look beautiful. It did it's look a lovely beautiful, snow, man. It's, it's not quite Australian beaches, but it was fun nonetheless. Well, let's get on to more exciting matters, which is what we'll be discussing on this week's podcast. We're going to be talking about the President Biden and his inauguration and plan for the first 100 days, the closing of the UK's borders, and the tricky question of how we value life. Last week, Joe Biden became the 46th President of the United States of America. Biden declared it a day of renewal and resolve and spoke extensively about unity. Morgan, did you watch the inauguration and what were your highlights from the day? I did watch the inauguration. It was a very odd inauguration to watch considering there were uh, very few spectators and more National Guard members uh, attending. Um, it was it was a good day in, in my opinion. I thought it kind of signified a return to statesmanship. Biden's speech was eloquent and kind of the the typical renewal renewing rhetoric that you kind of expect from a president. If you remember, President Trump's inauguration was basically about how horrible the United States was and how he was going to save it. Um, and Biden kind of had a more together aspect to his speech, which was a bit re- bit refreshing. Yeah, Daniel, it is kind of a return to normality, or at least it seems to be, doesn't it? In a lot of ways, it is definitely. I mean, the, the talk of unity and, and renewal is classic presidential language. It is a far cry from um, from President Trump's own speech. And one of my highlights, uh, I didn't watch the entire thing, but I did really enjoy the the poet Amanda Gorman, um, who was the youngest poet ever to perform at a American uh, president's inauguration, and she also had a fantastic fresh outfit on. So. I thoroughly enjoyed both the poetry and the the aesthetics as well. I I certainly enjoyed Lady Gaga's outfit more than anything else uh, (laughs) from the inauguration. But I I think on the more serious point about unity, um, 
it is interesting that that Biden kind of painted this picture that he wanted to be obviously a very different kind of president, less polarized than Trump. But at the same time, it seems like the Democrats are quite forthright with their agenda. And we've already seen uh, dozens of executive orders from President Biden on things like reentering the Paris Climate Change Agreement and the World Health Organization, uh, revising immigration enforcement, um, counseling the Keystone Pipeline. Um, Morgan, is your view that potentially we're going to see a lot more of this from the Biden administration, that while they might talk about unity, um, they're going to be relatively unashamed about pursuing what are Democrat priorities? Yeah, it's interesting because unity is kind of, you think of working together when you think of unity, whereas executive orders are unilateral decisions that Biden has been making, a lot of them very contentious and partisan. So I think there's an interesting point here. In the first couple of days, presidents tend to do a few executive orders, kind of get their main goals out of the way, like reentering the Paris Climate Change Agreement. And then we'll see kind of in the legislative agenda as they go through Congress, maybe we'll see a bit more bipartisan considering how close the um, the break is in the House and the Senate. You know, a very fine majority in the House and 50-50 split in the Senate. But on that same note, we've already seen a bit of partisanship in the Senate as they try to organize themselves. A lot of Democrats are trying to get rid of the filibuster rule, which would mean that they could pass things with a simple majority of 51 as opposed to 60. There's something about the word unity that takes on kind of two different meanings when it comes to politics. There's the classic meaning of the word and basically translating into being a moderate and appealing to people across partisan divides. Uh, And then there's the way that unity is almost always actually used by both sides of the political debate in America and the way that it has been, which is passing your policy agenda, but we, we just call it unity for some reason. Um, I think it's clear that at the moment Biden is very much, or at least his administration is very much the second type of of unity. It certainly seems that way with the the things that have been tackled so far. Uh, You mentioned the cancelling Keystone, for example. There's various others. It's a bit my way or the highway. It yeah, was kind of exactly. quite quite interesting in the inauguration speech more broadly that this all the talk of unity was underlined by a lot of talk of uh, of course there's these terrible people saying these terrible things and doing all these terrible things and these crazy Trump supporters is is are destroying America we need to unify against them I mean it doesn't really bring them in the tent but I think there's something quite fascinating here about just the breadth of um, the executive orders we've seen from Biden um, in, in on top of the kind of um, Headline ones, some things that you know I'd be perfectly supportive of. Um, I, I think some of Trump's um, immigration enforcement was excessively harsh. Um, that we should treat people equally, no matter their gender or sexuality, and uh, reversing the transgender military ban is sensible, and terminating funding for the border wall. There's also some um, quite protectionist mood in there as well. There was this kind of buy American executive orders, quite McCanceless. But I think it speaks to a broader element about the American presidency, which came to my mind. Um, is that the kind of classic Richard Neustadt that the presidential power is a power to persuade. Um, Morgan, uh, you studied, obviously, American politics. You are American, and, and you'd no doubt be very familiar with that phrase. Do you think it still applies today? If the president is can directly exercise and appears to be directly exercising quite a lot of power from the executive, surely they have a lot more than just the power to persuade. Exactly. We are seeing this kind of new... Uh 
new world of of unilateral decisions that the president is undertaking, which he doesn't have to persuade anyone to get on board with. He had to persuade people to vote for him, but now that he's in office, he has a bit more uh, leeway. What's interesting, I think, that we'll have to see is how much Biden will try to pursue uh, a middle ground agenda when he's facing influences from the far left of his party, um, which arguably are, are the more popular wings of his party in, in, as it comes to Democrats. So Biden was always known in, when, in his career as, as a persuader. He would cross the aisle. He was a very good negotiator. So it'd be interesting to see if those kind of trends that his personality naturally lends him to will continue or if he'll find that he ends up ruling by decree. Right. And you've, you've got this situation where whilst it's true that there's been a, an expansion in the role of the executive in recent times, there's this, it, it's the opposite of a moderating influence on, on power in the sense of the, the radical left of the, the Democrats have got a lot more influence now. But it is that they are a kind of a potential limit on presidential power just in the other direction, if that makes sense. It's, um, if anything, they're the ones that are stopping Biden from being more moderate or making it more difficult for him. So they, they are proving to be a check on presidential power, if only by uh, pursuing a more uh, a, a more radical agenda. I think one of the things we'll see as well is the Supreme Court um, coming into play because they're the ones that can challenge some of these executive orders, declaring them unconstitutional and what have you. And of course, Trump switched the balance of the Supreme Court to be a much more small state uh, ideologically uh, aligned court. There, there is this whole great irony in American politics that whenever there's a Democrat in power, the Republicans complain about excessive executive power. And when there's a Republican in, in the White House, then the Democrats complain. It seems like the underlying issue, at least in my head, is that uh, the president has just been given so much more power than the founders could have ever envisaged or, or wanted for the position. But I kind of want to unpack that point, Morgan, you were talking about there, about who is who is Biden in the White House? Is he the same um, unifier in that uh, former sense you were talking about, Daniel, in terms of bringing people together from across the aisle? Or is he at the point, you know, he's in quite a late stage in his career, he's um, more at the whims of maybe Pelosi, who's got, you know, quite a left-wing agenda, or uh, even AOC you know, and her kind of the, the squad who have a far-left agenda who are kind of pulling the Democratic Party, even if they don't get their way. It does seem like they're pulling the Democratic Party in that direction, uh, is that what we can expect for the next four years? Um, and then, what what kind of implications does that potentially have for American politics, Morgan? Uh, I think what we're seeing here is because Biden has such a narrow majority, he needs all of the Democrats on his side, especially in the Senate. And there are factions within the Democratic Party. You know, you have, like you said, the squad kind of people on the far left, and you have your moderates, and then you'll have even some conservative leaning. Uh, Democrats who kind of are, are in favor of more state power in a bit of a smaller state. Um, so he's going to have to kind of square the circle within his own party before he even attempts to reach across the aisle. And I do think, like you said, we are seeing a trend of pulling the Democratic Party even further to the left, which I actually don't think is appealing to the majority of the electorate. So if Biden continues to be pulled by the far left into this kind of identity politics, massive state uh, welfare and and uh, kind of inefficient wealth transfers protectionist uh, 
on behalf of uh, Buy American and 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 small businesses in the states like that, you will we will encounter a problem in four years. Yeah, and and you look at the kind of the the first weekend office and and what he's done and i from from my perspective at least the things that he's passed or the the things that he's gone for we've already mentioned the paris climate change agreement canceling keystone and the trans military ban being lifted most of these could be fit into uh, a more a more moderate democratic agenda so i don't think we've seen anything yet that kind of makes clear that he's been he's been captured by the, the more radical forces in the Democratic Party. I think that that's probably likely to some extent. I mean, Morgan, you, you explained quite well how just simple math means that he has to uh, cater to all sides of his party. Uh, and he's kind of in this situation that it's going to be very, very bad for policymaking potentially. But at least so far in its very early days, I don't quite see the the issues that some have predicted arising yet. I, I think you're right, Dan. I think, yeah, I don't think we've seen any any harsh signs yet, but we do need to kind of keep an eye out. It, it, I think, yeah, it is indeed very early days. Uh, and I think the next interesting element will be how the opposition forms. I think Biden's in that position right now in, in a kind of honeymoon stage of the presidency where really the Republicans haven't quite worked out what their attack lines are going to be. But we know the Republicans, just like the Democrats, are very good at opposition. Um, and opposition is always very effective. I mean, interesting to see, and I don't think we quite know which way this is going to go yet, is whether or not the Republicans kind of continue down the Trump line, which I think is quite questionable, as we saw in Georgia. If you continue down this kind of conspiracy theories, the, you know, the election was stolen from us, um, this very populist worldview, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily going to have wide electoral support. Or do they try to return to a more traditional um, Republican Party and more kind of what, what I suppose we'd like to see, a kind of Reagan-era principled free market um, conservatism or libertarianism um, strain within the party having a little bit more dominance? Uh, I don't think that that question is quite answered yet what the soul of the Republican Party will become. We probably won't really know that until we have the next presidential candidate in four years' time, but we do have um, in two years' time another congressional election and, and could potentially, if the Republicans are successful in opposition, um, take back the House like they did in 2010. I mean, wouldn't it be lovely if they if they did return to that? I, I'm i not convinced that they necessarily will. I'm not optimistic that they will anyway. I'd certainly like them to. And part of the reason for that is in um, we ran, as, uh, as Morgan and, and yourself will know, a webinar yesterday at the time of recording on the kind of first 100 days of Biden's administration. And uh, one of the guests on there, Douglas Carswell, mentioned the Tea Party as a classic example of at least a a grassroots movement that started with focus on issues like fiscal conservatism um, and looking at small government in the more classical liberal or or libertarian sense. And that was great when it first started. But the grassroots of the Republican movement right now uh, and I think probably in the future, have moved on uh, to a large extent from issues of free market economics being their primary motivating factor. I think that kind of Trump, in many ways, was, was the symptom, not the cause of this. Uh, in, in some ways, he kind of catalyzed it amongst Republican grassroots. But it seems like the the 
more traditional Republican issues to focus on and to, to campaign on have been replaced to a large extent by more culture war po uh, politics and, and topics, uh, things like immigration, for example, and kind of woke versus unwoke debates. And I think the Republicans, as much as I think they should, and I think probably it would be to their broader electoral advantage that they've still got to be, they're, they're still being captured to a certain extent by these considerations that that are going to make them more divisive, that are going to make it harder for them to appeal across the aisle. Now, they might get lucky and have an opposition that makes exactly the same mistake just from the progressive left of politics or the radical left of politics and get stuck in the kind of culture wars issues and, and doesn't actually talk about some of the, the things that ordinary Americans care about the most, which is at the end of the day, you know, how how their living standards, how are they doing in the, it's the economy is stupid, that kind of thing. Uh, but I am concerned that the incentives from the grassroots of both parties are towards more polarization in the future and, and a move away from the sort of liberalism that we, we know and love here at the ASI. Well, on that gloomy note, it might be time to move on to our next topic. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is expected to require all arrivals from 30 high-risk countries to quarantine in hotels for 10 days. This comes after the UK government seemingly resisting calls for a full temporary border closure. Uh, the government's actions, once again, too little too late, Matthew. Look, I think that's certainly the way it's, it's going to be painted by its critics. I think in the first instance... Um, the government should be congratulated to some extent by finally doing something um, on the border. The, the restrictions um, clearly haven't been particularly effective um, in, in the past. We, we started off at the start of the pandemic being told that border restrictions don't do anything. And that meant that basically millions of people entered the country. Um, the, the original outbreak was sparked over, over February and March, um, both potentially directly from China, but also from arrivals from across uh, European countries. Um, then there was basically free entry while the UK was locked down throughout late March into April, into May. Um, anyone could come in from anywhere in the world without any restrictions whilst you weren't supposed to leave your home and, and go five miles down the street. Um, but the UK then introduced for the first time uh, some requirements of quarantine on arrival, but only arrival at home, which wasn't particularly well enforced. And that came in from the start of June. Uh, but then they reversed that effectively a month later with a, a quite a high number of travel corridors. Um, and it's was subsequently determined that a key reason for um, new outbreaks in the UK from October um, came from strains that were reintroduced, most likely from people's summer travel. Um, so it seems like the, the risk of COVID being reintroduced, even if you deal with it domestically from international arrivals, is quite substantial. And now uh, the real impetus for this latest step is the fact that there's a potential of introduction of a mutated strain of COVID uh, from particularly these 30 high-risk countries that could be vaccine-resistant. The problem, though, is that by limiting it to these countries, there's still a risk that somebody could come in from a third country that does allow entry from these 30 countries um, and then they could come into the UK with that mutant strain and, and spread it without the kind of stricter quarantine requirements. Um, so it, there's probably going to have to be an expansion of it if it's going to prove effective uh, to include a lot more countries. 
um, also other countries with large outbreaks, there could be mutant strains on on the way um, and you won't know until it's already present potentially in the UK and it's already too late. There's also a three-week delay on the introduction of these measures potentially um, time to set up the hotel quarantine system. Um, now, of course, it is quite difficult, but <laughs> there's going to be a lot of people entering in the meantime. Admittedly, the current requirements do say any, any arrivals do have to quarantine, they have to get a pre-departure test, um, and that will present limit some damage. Um, but it seems like you, you do need to have quite strict border restrictions if you're not going to risk um, the kind of outbreaks that the UK has seen. Back in uh, maybe April, when Trump closed the borders to the US to many European countries, but not the UK, I was critical of this for the same reason. If you're going to close the borders, you need to close the borders because as if no one's taken a direct, an indirect flight through a third country, you know, having these measures are maybe better than nothing, but you can't act like it's going to solve the problem if you still allow in uh, flights through third party countries. Right. There's uh, the classic phrase, the worst thing about this is the hypocrisy. I'm not quite sure that's the the worst thing about it, but you did have this situation where people uh, couldn't leave their homes and you have this situation now where people can't really leave their homes for most reasons. And yet, uh, at the same time, people were able to fly into the country uh, without having to quarantine. And to me, there's, there's a sort of, there's a political inconsistency in that, that I think a lot of British public recognise there seems to be pretty widespread support for temporary border closures if you look at the most recent polling on this and, and I think for good reason you don't want to um, for not for the sake of our uh, the citizens in the UK but also for the sake of our international reputation you don't want to be the country that um, that kind of incubates a mutant strain and then because of uh, keeping the borders open may, may spread that to other nearby countries and basically be the the sick man of Europe um, or the sick man just outside Europe more accurate at the moment. Uh, Matthew, we've been mentioning the hotel quarantine system and you, you're currently based in Australia. So how has Australia's quarantine system worked in practice? Is it actually something that we in the UK could replicate or is there, there something uniquely Australian about it that, that <laughs> makes it easier? Quarantine with the Australian uh, characteristics. I mean, there, there have been quite a lot of countries that, that have quarantine arrivals, not just Australia. Um, New Zealand does as well, but also it's similar kind of mechanisms um, of quite intense quarantine for a, quite a high number of countries uh, across Asia. If you want to go to Taiwan or uh, you want to go to China or you want to go to Korea, Japan, wherever it may be, there's an expectation that you will quarantine potentially at a hotel or otherwise um, it's extremely well enforced uh, if you do quarantine at home. Um, I had personal experience of quarantine when I came back uh, into Australia uh, from the UK at the end of November and I was um, arrived at the airport. I I waited around for a few hours. I was given a a room allocation at a a hotel and then they they put me on a bus to that hotel, took me to my room and and left me there for 14 days. Luckily enough, I could still order food and um, you could have access to the internet and, and whatever, but more or less couldn't leave the room, can't go exercise outside. Um, it has been quite a challenge for Australia and it has been mixed levels of success. There was uh, new outbreaks that have been sparked, um, a particularly big one in, in Victoria, my home state, which happened around the middle of last year um, as a result of leaks out of hotel quarantine. Um, so it's not something that's very easy to manage. Um, and there's, there's big risks, particularly from all the staff who are involved in the hotel quarantine, uh, who, for example, need to be regularly tested, um, who need to ensure that uh, they 
aren't interacting with other people in other jobs that are at high risk. You need to make sure the cleaners are, you know, wearing PPE when they go and clean the rooms after people stay. Um, it's quite difficult for the pe- for people for 14 days to be stuck in a room. Um, particularly, you know, I was lucky enough I was working at the time. I could keep myself relatively busy, um, but it's very easy to go stir crazy. You need a lot of kind of support for people in that situation, both for people's mental health and their physical health. So these are some of the issues that I think the government's um, slowly going to realise and have to start tackling as they introduce this program um, and, quite frankly, uh, relatively late to having some kind of program like this. I mean, ideally, you'd um, let people also quarantine in other ways and if they test negative after five days you might let them out earlier um, depending on your kind of uh, risk willingness Um, but as you said Daniel really this is the only way to do it um, if you don't want to have that risk of mutant strain particularly since the UK will be um, amongst the first places in the world to have a large percentage of the population vaccinated if there is a mutant strain that enters the population it will spread like wildfire uh, through that population if it's if it doesn't um, if the vaccines don't work on that mutant strain so you've got you create a very susceptible population um, to incubate that potentially incubate or um, spread that new strain and if you want to stop that you've got to do the hotel quarantine and it's it's going to be a lot of hard work um, I'm not completely convinced that you the British state is up to it based upon um, experience over recent um, months in during the pandemic but it, it's certainly something that needs to be done Right. It's one of the, the challenges of being one of the countries that is ahead in the vaccination process is that while well, you're going to have to shut down the borders potentially for, for a longer period, because while everyone else catches up and we kind of try and, and eradicate or, or reduce the amount of COVID uh, in the world, we're going to have to continue to worry about that mutant strain risk more and more. So would you say that there's a kind of a risk here of once we've shut them, this isn't something we can reverse easily or for, for quite some time? And has that been the case in Australia? Yeah, I think Australia's kind of stuck with some kind of border restrictions for quite a while. My hope is that um, they'll lift it once uh, a large percentage of people are vaccinated. Um, if you are vaccinated, it should be relatively easier. You can shorten quarantine time. You can hopefully replace quarantine to some extent with testing. Um, we can do a whole lot of different things, but we're going to have to be careful for a long time um, if we don't want to, depending on the level of risk we want to take. And I think it's quite a dark thought that it might be a little while before we can travel the way we have in the past. Um, hopefully, uh, it'll progressively open up as countries do vaccinate and, and things become a lot safer and hopefully the virus is extinguished or at the very least a lot less dangerous and we have better treatments and and vulnerable people can be protected and whatever else so hopefully you can open up international travel but i suspect this is going to be an ongoing issue for for quite a while one of the things that's most frustrating to me about this situation is the fact that we've had virtually no travel um kind of restrictions at all this whole time you didn't have to show a test you didn't even get your temperature taken at a lot of the airports i mean i was lucky enough to get away to rome for a week in august and upon returning, I just went through the e-gates. I didn't interact with anyone who asked me where I had been, didn't get my temperature taken, didn't have to prove I uh, had a test, negative test result. They had you fill out a self-declaration form. And when we asked the border control people, well, what about the people that don't have a form or they go through the e-gates and you don't look at that, their form? What's the process there? And I kid you not, the response was, well, we just have to trust them. It's like you're trusting people that they're not 
unknowingly infected with a deadly virus on their way back into the country. I mean, we're at this point of hotel quarantine, I think, because we did the absolutely nothing, not even the bare minimum throughout the entire crisis. We didn't even require temperature checks. So I think that this is kind of, uh, even if it's a lot, it's too little too late. Yeah, it, it feels kind of weird as, as liberals to be complaining about the lack of checks at, at borders and uh, and complaining that, that we're not being tested enough. But in this case, it's very much justified and with good reason. I think every time I come through the border, I tell you guys that I have breached the border. That's in a good way. This isn't a bad way. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Uh, very difficult. So very easy to breach the, the UK border at the moment. Not, not much you have to do. Uh, one of the issues we, we've seen in the US around the pandemic is that the, and the UK for that matter, is the impact on the travel and tourism industry. Uh, and I imagine that there's going to be a pretty pretty bad economic impact if we do end up closing the borders for a, a quote-unquote temporary amount of time, no such thing. Oh, it, it's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program, as Milton Friedman likes to say. Uh, so are we concerned about the, the kind of effects on the, the travel and tourism industries? We've already had requests for various bailouts and, uh, and, and funding in the US and the UK here. I think eventually people will want to be able to get back to travel and in the kind of longer run, people are going to want to be able to enjoy the world again. And I hope that we get to such a position where that's safe to do so. Ideally, you know, one methodology to do it is to have green zones and orange zones and red zones. So, you know, you can kind of travel pretty freely between countries with low cases, having like a travel bubble between Australia and New Zealand and then expanding that to increase Singapore and Taiwan. And then when the UK's got its case numbers, so they can travel in it. So there might be that kind of situation for, for some time. Um, international travel being more cumbersome, but something that people still want to do. Um, there's another effect of the pandemic, which is that potentially people could just not feel safe traveling for some time. Um, I'm not sure about that effect. I, I think people will want to get back to it. And then there's a question of business travel as well. Uh, will people see Zoom as a replacement and, and business travel as an unnecessary luxury? I'm not sure, but these are all kind of potential changes. So it's, I don't know about a death knell, but it might not be an industry that's as big as, as it was in 2019 for, for quite a long time. Yeah, and one, one of the other economic impacts that springs to mind is the, the impact on immigration more broadly. Now, obviously, this is something that, that naturally has gone down over the course of the pandemic, just like travel has, and, and whether we have restrictions in place or not, people are going to naturally respond to the changed circumstances in the world. But the economic impact of immigration, as, uh, as we've discussed in, on this podcast and in various ASI papers and blog posts and, and whatnot, it, it is not insignificant. Uh, and especially when we look at the kind of key areas where the immigration plays a role in the UK in relation to healthcare as well, I wonder whether this is something that has potentially been been overlooked as a, a negative economic impact as well. If you close the borders, you're you're going to get even less in the way of immigration and some of the economic effects that that causes. Yeah, I think this could be a double whammy for our immigration policy as we are going to be experiencing decreased uh, demand almost for, for, for immigration, but also we are uh, cracking down on our immigration policy, making it harder for people to come here. So I think both of those things combined, we could be experiencing uh, yeah, a, a, a lack of needed immigration. I think what's interesting is 
your point about healthcare is there were some concessions made which allowed healthcare workers and care workers to remain in the UK even if they had an expiring visa or something of the like, uh, just to make sure that we didn't lose that valuable labor at a time when we needed it most. But that is just indicative of how important immigration is to our functioning society and the idea that we're making it harder. And then also the pandemic is making it less desirable uh, is something to be concerned about. Well, on yet another gloomy note, I think it's time to move on to the final section of the podcast. Bit of a bit of a gloomy one today, isn't it? Well, on to another gloomy topic. Former Supreme Court Justice Lord Jonathan Sumpton has been widely criticised for stating to a stage four cancer patient that her life was less value. Sumpton was on the BBC debating the impact of lockdowns. Um, Daniel, I think this as a resident utilitarian philosopher, was Sumpton right about the sense in which there is a different value of life? Um, Presumably what we're talking about here is the, the idea that based upon the chances of surviving that we value a younger life, let's say more than an older life or someone who's um, healthy and has a long life ahead of them, ahead of them over someone who is a cancer patient. Uh, yes, shockingly, I think that his, his kind of the broad philosophical thrust of his comments were correct. Um, it's fairly well established in, in public health economics that the idea of life years uh, and quality adjusted life years being a pretty key measure of making decisions, whether it's on commissioning a new drug for the NHS or prioritizing certain people for certain treatments uh, in a system with limited resources. You you have to make those decisions, sadly. And um, the, the kind of best criteria that I can see for, for making them is looking at um, the kind of the amount of quality adjusted life years or qualities, um, as cold as it sounds, that, that someone or, or several people are going to gain from that. Uh, it surprised me, actually, that, that Sumption made this comment. He, he's kind of rode back on it in in subsequent uh, comments to the media, but he, he's someone who had a reputation in his uh, judgments as the former uh, Supreme Court judge of being quite focused on the sanctity of life and the, the kind of the, the alternative principle of oh, you know every life is of of equal um, of equal moral value and consideration, um, and that sounds like a, pr- a perfectly reasonable principle, but that principle doesn't really get you anywhere when you have to make these sort of decisions, especially in the midst of a pandemic, about who gets the vaccine first, about um, about lockdowns and their various impacts on, on different groups, for example. So you've got to have some sort of way of considering these problems. Um, and, and the alternative, which is, you know, that every single life is of equal value um, and we, we can't kind of have any sort of prioritization when it comes to thinking about the impacts of policies on, on, on people who are either going to be around longer to face their consequences or are going to be um, are going to be more affected by it in the sense that, that they're going to lose a higher quality of life. I, I, I think that's, you know, you, you've got to make these decisions. Um, that's not to say that there's not a, a space or an, a grave importance attached to the idea of rights for for individuals regardless of um, regardless of you know their their kind of life situation but you have to kind of look at rights uh, as a broad expression of principles rather than um rather than 
being able to take on some of these these key public health questions that we had to tackle uh, more so than ever recently. Though, Daniel, isn't there a sense in which there is a natural human instinct? And and I think we saw that if you watch the the video response between Lord Sumpton and and the cancer patient he's speaking to, that the very idea of saying that not everyone is equal is something we recall from. And I think there's perhaps um, two senses and we're kind of talking, you can talk it crosswise here. So, you know, in my, my view, and I'm a little bit more of a rights-based thinker than, than you are, Daniel, which is that you know, everyone is of equal moral worth um, as, as a fundamental value that everyone has, you know, a, a basic, you know, right to life, to exist, to, to be there. Um, but as you, as you have said, I think correctly, um, that's very hard to square with the trade-offs that we face in society. And that we have to find ways, like the the qual um, metric, the quality adjusted life years metric, to deal with the the realities in which we face, while still acknowledging that everyone is moral equal. Um, that we have to make these kind of decisions um, based upon metrics of you know, quality of life and uh, whatever else we we might be willing to consider. And I think of an example here of. Um, let's say that you say everyone, you know, should be treated exactly the same by the healthcare system, um, and then you have people show up at an emergency room that's overwhelmed. Um, it could be a result of COVID, it could be a result of a- an earthquake or a you know terrorist attack, whatever it may be. You know, you've, you've got a, a system which everyone shows up uh, one by one to this emergency room with quite severe injuries. Um, the traditional response to medicine is a triage system, in which you prioritize the patients most likely live. And let's say during the triage systems, you can you can save 70% of lives. Um, the alternative choice is to say, well, we're just going to do it based upon who arrives first. Um, but who arrives first might not necessarily be those who have the highest chance of surviving and fewer people might live. So let's say only 50% of the people who showed up lived as a result of that. Now that seems like a worse outcome in any meaningful sense. And what you want to do is try to maximize life and, and in any way you can, whilst acknowledging whilst we're all morally equal, we have to make these kind of trade-offs using some kind of metric to make sure as many people as possible survive or have a high quality of life. Right. I can I can understand why a lot of people instinctively recoiled at and, and viewed his, his comments to this um, this cancer patient on BBC as as pretty morally reprehensible uh and uh, you know we we have got that instinctive reaction of well you know you you can't say that someone's life is is less valuable than someone else's but you get into these situations like a triage system which we're basically operating uh, across the nation in in a lot of ways um when it comes to the, the covid crisis and when it comes to various other decisions about you know well young people are are facing uh, certain disproportionate consequences of, of COVID-19, uh, they're, they're going to have to deal with the consequences for a longer amount of time and stuff. And you, you're faced with just like the, the reality of human life um, and, and living, uh, to, 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 to use a phrase, in a society. Uh, and you have to make these sort of callous prioritizing decisions. And actually, I think in, in a lot of ways, if you flip it on its head, the, the kind of callous and and less moral thing to do in these situations is to pretend that that doesn't exist that you, that you don't have to make these decisions to kind of shy away from them behind saying that well you know we'll, we'll just um treat everyone in exactly the same way um there, there is you know a difference between um between treating people 
equally under the law, for example, versus um, these broader public health policy decisions. And one, one of the other things that I, I guess I, I agree with his, as I said, the, the broad philosophical backing behind his comments. What I worry about is that he, he is quite a prominent lockdown skeptic and he's kind of taken this, um, this worldview to the conclusion that well, because you know, children and grandchildren are going to bear the consequences of lockdowns for a lot longer. Therefore, they're they're not justified. And I worry that sometimes you can get a bit too absorbed in the um, qualities and public health worldview, where you ignore the fact that you know people in their their fifties and sixties and seventies have still got. Uh, an immense amount of, of value left in their lives if they're allowed to live them. Um, and, and oftentimes you can kind of, you can go a little bit too hardcore on it and you can forget that, yeah, just because someone is, is, is 60, for example, in their 60s doesn't mean that um, lockdown is, is not, um, the, the, the COVID is, is not going to significantly reduce their quality of life uh, and, and, be a significant moral harm if they were to, to die from COVID. And, and actually the trade-off between uh, older people's lives and uh, younger people's well-being is, is not one that falls down on the side of, well, just, just let it rip or kind of Great Barrington Declaration style yep. system. Yeah. Yep. Uh, look, Morgan, just bringing you back into the conversation, uh, what, what did you make of Sumpton's remarks? Um, I th- agree with both of you in this discussion. I think we make these trade-offs every day, especially as we've discussed with the NHS determining uh, who gets treatment, what kind of treatment they get. I thought it probably wasn't the best delivery, um, maybe, to, to say it directly to someone who is going to feel personally attacked. Um, but yes, we, we cannot deny that we make these choices every day, especially in healthcare. One thing that came to my mind is, I think where he's coming from is more of a policy choice sort of standpoint. As Dan mentioned, he's more considering the policy choice of lockdown and how we're handling the outbreak. And in in that instance, people would like to think that we're not assigning life value to, to people. We're doing what we can to preserve everyone's life. But there are a lot of policy choices where we do assign life value based on based on a choice so i'm gonna go off of healthcare and and the first thing that came to my mind was when we decide to go to war if world leaders governments decide to engage in an act of conflict they're deciding that that cause that they've chosen is more valuable than the lives of the people that they will send into that conflict potentially you know of course in a lot of instances those people are volunteers and some they're not but they the soldiers men and women who go into conflict acknowledge that someone has put a a value on their life and they've they've said that this conflict that we're going into maybe holds greater value in the grand scheme of things than my own personal life so we do put uh value and meaning on people's lives in policy aspects if that makes sense you kind of undertake decisions that have real life consequences for people's lives um, and it, more than just healthcare, we kind of do it in in a lot of different ways. And you, you you don't look at it that way necessarily, but that's what you're doing. Yeah, I think it's worth though unpacking. Um, and I think Daniel, you were starting to make this point about was something right uh, in the broader sense of the point he was making. Sorry, in the I guess more the narrower sense of the point it was making. If he was right in the broader sense about the philosophy, um, was he right in the in the narrow sense? 
about um, lockdown. And I think, Daniel, you would very much um, say to make the argument there that he was wrong in his calculation. Um, but does that not potentially speak to a, the central flaw in the kind of qual approach, which is uncertainty? Um, what makes me kind of uncomfortable about it, even though I know we kind of have to do it and we don't have a better way of making these decisions, is it kind of um, stinks quite heavily of the central planning fantasy um, the, the deceit that, that Hayek talks about, which is thinking that you can calculate uh, in a meaningful way um, how much somebody was likely to live for and all the potential costs and benefits. And if you think about COVID uh, as an example of this, um, we might be able to do a, a calculation of the costs and benefits of COVID and the, the cost of the lost school time and uh, the, the closed down businesses and the lost opportunities. Uh, there's lots of things we probably can't measure um, on both sides of this uh, in terms of, let's say, um, people's mental health impact. I don't know how we put a number on that. Maybe not many people are taking their lives, but it's, it's going to have some psychological scarring effects or um, the friends you haven't made in the last year because you haven't been socialising as much. Um, and, a, and a lot of this is not just because of lockdown, of course, it's because of the virus itself. Um, but you, there's other things that might be impossible to calculate, you know, the, the kind of global effects on the global economy of, of what the West has done and, and whatnot. It just seems like trying to make these calculations and, and trying to use this kind of, you know, idea that we can precisely work out the, the costs and the benefits of everything is just kind of uh, deeply flawed in itself. Um, even if the approach might be sound, if it can't be implemented in practice, is it a, a really an approach that's worth taking, Daniel? Yeah, there's certainly, I mean, the, the key thing I take away from your comments there is that you have to exercise a great deal of humility whenever you're making any of the, these sort of calculations. Uh, and whether that humility is based or expressed in the form of extremely wide-based uh, confidence intervals in a particular study or, or whether it's more uh, poetically expressed, the, the kind of central issue with this that you mentioned that, well, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to accurately do this as much as we have to, uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty, I, I think is true. Uh, on the other hand, I, I think that as kind of free marketeers, we make these sort of arguments on uh, in other policy fields all the time. Um, we talk about the, the net economic effects of particular tax reform. And by doing that, we are, to a certain extent, performing that same um, planning mindset, cost-benefit analysis of a particular policy. Now, it might be that we support say, uh, a particular uh, tax cut or a particular regulatory reform for, for other reasons in, in our kind of liberal um, political framework uh, relating to the importance of freedom and rights in and of themselves. But often, at least when, when we at the Adam Smith Institute uh, and when, um, when other proponents of liberalism and, and neoliberalism and free markets are, are making the case for them, we do so on exactly these grounds because ultimately this is the kind of the, the common currency by which people decide how to um, how to operate government and how how, how not to operate government uh, in many cases for for our perspective at least so yeah that there's a worry here that you can get too sucked into this kind of man of system mindset as Adam Smith calls it and kind of um, you know weigh the weigh the value of everything in a way that's either completely misinformed in the case of assumption, for example, where he, he simply got the, the cost-benefit analysis um, horribly wrong um, for kind of justification of that. I'd recommend the 
um, our senior fellow Sam Bowman's article where he takes on similar claims by Toby Young in uh, The Critic earlier, um, or rather last year, where he, he makes a, a good kind of discussion of the, the cost-benefit analysis of, of lockdown policies from the perspective of these quality-adjusted life years um, and, and looks at how our various health institutions actually put a monetary value on a healthy year of life. Um, but you, you've got to you've got to always be mindful that you, you can't be too reliant on this sort of way of thinking because oftentimes you get things wrong um, and oftentimes you you know you you will completely screw up a certain estimate um, and you've got to be careful as well when you're thinking about this way of this way of approaching policy problems not to think that well you you're someone who's able to solve everything through government action as a result of this um, just because you can analyze the effects of something doesn't mean that you know you're able to foresee all the unintended consequences as, as Hayek often talks about um, and that's why you should be more skeptical you should kind of have a a, a reason or a presumption against uh, against government action in an area unless it's it's very much shown or there's very good evidence that actually it will result in a net in an increase in welfare. Well, on that very philosophical ending to what was uh, quite gloomy, but hopefully a quite rewarding uh, episode of the Adam Smith Institute's uh, Pin Factory podcast, I want to thank you very much for listening. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm our head of research. You've just been listening to the dulcet tones of Daniel Pryor, who is my co-host and our head of programs, as well as Morgan Schonemeyer, our head of external affairs. Please do, if you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a rating and subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. Mm-hmm.